Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a federal immigration detention facility in South Georgia could soon become the nation's largest, but there's opposition. Immigrant rights advocate Azadeh Shashahani with Project South joins me to discuss all of this. Also, the Carter Center recorded just 14 cases of guinea worm disease in humans last year. You may ask, why is that so significant? Well, it's an initiative started decades ago under former President Jimmy Carter, and the mission was to eradicate guinea worm disease in several African nations. If the worm comes out of a joint, say in your knee, it swells up and destroys the tissue. So the aftermath is very similar to polio. It completely debilitates that knee, and, and sometimes the knee, is, the leg is, is crippled for the rest of one's life. Adam Weiss, the director of the Carter Center's Guinea Worm Eradication Program, will give us an update. Plus, we'll all meet Ashley Finch. She's Atlanta's new micromobility czar. And there's much more to her job than just advocating for electric scooters. We'll talk all about that. All that's ahead, but first this. A state Senate committee has passed a bill to prohibit transgender students from playing on sports teams that match their gender identity. Governor Kemp has indicated he wants to sign such legislation this session. Sam Greenglass has more. SB 435 defines gender solely by the sex listed on a kid's birth certificate and mandates that determines which team a student can play on. The bill's sponsor, Republican Senator Marty Harbin, says allowing transgender kids to play on girls' teams is unfair. This will allow more young girls to achieve their dreams without worry that they may be competing against those who have an insurmountable genetic advantage. Jen Slipikoff is the parent of a transgender middle schooler who's on the girls' lacrosse team. She addressed the committee during public comments. There have been no protests from her teammates, from their parents, or from opposing teams. In fact, her teammates are some of her very best friends. Her coaches are kind and supportive and believe she is a valued member of their team and that she belongs. Slipikoff asked the panel, how do they recommend she explain to her daughter that she can no longer play lacrosse with her best friends? The full Senate could take up the bill as early as this week. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And in other Georgia political news, a state lawmaker with substantial influence over funding for the state's colleges and universities is requesting information on how these institutions teach topics like social justice and anti-racism. Representative David Knight of Griffin, Georgia, chairs the Higher Education Appropriations Subcommittee. The Republicans sent a letter last week to the Interim University System of Georgia Chancellor, Teresa McCartney, asking for years of records on how state schools have dedicated resources to subject areas like diversity, equity and inclusion and implicit bias. The move is the latest from some Georgia Republicans looking to exert more control over the topics taught in Georgia's public schools from elementary to higher ed. Representative Knight also specifically named Emory University professor Dr. Carol Anderson, who's been a guest on this program several times, in the letter, quote, for each USG institution during the past two years, please identify all institutional publications and materials in which the term anti-racist was utilized. Please also identify all institutional publications and materials explicitly referring to Dr. Ibram Kendi, Dr. Beverly D'Angelo or Dr. Carol Anderson, close quote. We should note There is no Dr. Beverly D'Angelo that we could locate. Now, there is an actress by that name, a very fine actress, an award-winning performance as Patsy Cline and Cole Miner's daughter. And she was the, you might recall, the mother in the very popular National Lampoon Vacation movies. We think Representative Knight meant Dr. Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, Fertility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. 
Finally, Camden County residents in southeast Georgia will get a chance to vote on plans to build a commercial spaceport there. As Molly Samuel reports, a judge is ordering a special election for next month. The county has been working for years to develop a commercial spaceport on an old industrial property near the coast. Boosters say launching small rockets up to a dozen a year would attract the growing commercial space industry to the largely rural county. Critics say the rockets could threaten homes and Cumberland Island National Seashore, and they object to the millions of dollars the county has already spent on the idea. So they started a petition to make the county bring its purchase of the property to a vote. This week, a judge said they got enough signatures, and he set a special election for March 8th. The federal government signed off on the county's license to operate the spaceport late last year. But to make it a reality, the county needs to buy the land. Molly Samuel, WABE News. By the way, I like Patsy Klein. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're tuned to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. An immigration detention center in southeast Georgia could be on its way to becoming the nation's largest. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, runs a facility in part with another entity in Folkestone between Valdosta and Brunswick. It plans to nearly quadruple the number of beds there for federal immigration detainees. Now, that's all according to a report from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Closer Look reached out to ICE to confirm the plans, and they declined to comment on the record. It's a plan also that's drawn the attention of immigrant rights advocates like Azadeh Shashahani with Project South. She's been a regular on this program before and joins me now. Azadeh, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Let's begin here because this detention center is operated in part by an outside corrections company called the GEO Group. That is that correct? Yes, it's a private prison corporation. What do we know about this entity? It's a private prison corporation. They have a lot of these uh, facilities that they operate? Right. They um, own and operate a number of um, detention centers and prisons around the country. And like (laughs) pretty much every other private prison corporation, they have an awful record. Um, because, you know, we should remember that um, these private prison corporations, their main motivation is to maximize their profit. And um, yet the government is entrusting the care of human beings um, to these private prison corporations where, um, you know, there have been deaths. Um, you know, most recently, obviously, we had the, um, the, the situation with medical abuse at the Irving County Detention Center, which was run by LaSalle and other private prison corporation. Um, there have been eight deaths at the Stewart Detention Center run by CoreCivic. The GEO group runs um, places in, um, around the country where people have been subjected to forced labor. Um, and yet the Biden administration has decided to expand um, this privately operated detention center, uh, which, you know, I think is reprehensible. Now, on the website, on the, the, the entity's website, it says that they are committed to corporate social responsibility, uh, according to them, that the annual publication of our human rights and environmental social and governance report uh, furthermore, furthers their commitment to providing transparent and comprehensive disclosures and metrics. Have you all been able to get information that you wanted from this group or groups like for well, let's let's focus on this group. Have you all sought to get information in terms of treatment and, and the environment inside this particular facility or facilities that they run? So there have been reports of inhumane uh, treatment and real concerns about hygiene and um, 
really inadequate access to medical care at the Folkestone Detention Center that mm -hmm. has been in operation for a few years now. Um, but there are also problems with transparency um, because, you know, whereas there are laws such as um, FOIA uh, and open records requests um, uh, that, you know, apply very clearly to uh, governmental agencies, um, it is, um, you know, less clear in terms of their application to private prison corporations. Um, and so, you know, lack of oversight and transparency is another important issue when it comes to privatized um, detention of immigrants. And I should add that um, currently about 80% of immigrants nationally are in uh, detention centers mm -hmm. run by private prison corporations. And we should note that the GEO Group is the second largest private prison corporation in the United States. Let me ask you this. Let's go back then because so to your knowledge, in terms of this expansion, is it because more we know that more detainees will be headed to this facility or in, to your knowledge, the reason behind the expansion? Well, that's a good question for the Biden administration. You know, President Biden promised to just to stop the use of private prisons. You know, candidate Biden promised that President Biden promised that at the end of, at the beginning of his term. And yet everything we have seen points to the opposite of that. Um, such that, um, you know, the Folkestone is expanding, other um, private um, prisons around the country are expanding, the Biden administration is actively reaching out to private prison corporations to ask them to submit uh, proposals for, um, you know, expansion. And that's, that's a real problem. And, you know, this comes on the heels of a major victory um, that, that we celebrated. Um, so in September, the last of immigrants um, basically um, was removed out of the Irving County Detention Center. Um, you know, this place, another corporate run mm -hmm. um, ICE prison where women, immigrants, women were being subjected to medical abuse, um, as we pointed out in our complaint that was filed the year before. Um, and out of, uh, you know, after years of um, advocacy, we were finally able to get this administration um, to go ahead and stop um, the use of the Urban County Detention Center as an immigration detention center. So that was a positive step, except that shortly afterwards, um, we realized that women are being detained at the Stuart Detention Center. Um, you know, women had not been detained there um, uh, in recent history, that's another very problematic detention center. And yet, and now we're seeing the expansion of Folkestone. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems that, you know, it's very convenient for the administration to go ahead and expand this place. Um, it is remote. Um, so, you know, it's five hours from Atlanta, making it very difficult for um, advocates and attorneys um, from Metro Atlanta to go down and try to visit people. Um, so it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Let's just, you know, expand this place further and, you know, keep people there in potentially inhumane conditions, um, which is very problematic. Azadeh, have you visited this? I know you have visited some, I believe you, you visited Stewart, but have you visited this detention center? I have not had the chance to visit this particular facility, but colleagues have and the concerns that we have um, you know, about treatment of people at other detention centers also hold true for Folkestone. Well, let's just take that a little bit further than you say also hold true for Folkestone. What have your colleagues said then that they have witnessed or heard from those housed in this detention center? Um, and I should say we also have received, you know, letters and communication um, from people at Folkestone about um, lack of um, adequate access to medical care, lack of adequate access to counsel, uh, hygiene uh, problems in terms of pests and you know plumbing issues, overcrowding, um, keeping people in in their cells for 22 hours a day, and 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 problems such as that. And you know this was when um, the capacity of this place was one fourth of what the administration wanted to become, and mm -hmm. so. Um, you know, time will tell um, what the situation there is going to be like now that it's going to be the largest ICE prison in the country. And given the history of other privately run detention centers around the country, I'm afraid that um, it's not going to be, a, you know, a place where people are treated with dignity uh, and respect for their human rights. Our producers 
were given some information and basically according to ICE that the, as they put it, the ICE detainee count for Folkestone Processing Center is about 544. That's on an average daily ICE detainee count. Does that sound too much in terms of what your colleagues have said in terms of spacing and capacity and, and concerns about folks being able to move freely or any other concerns? Cause we haven't been right. inside there. So, and you said you haven't. Right. But. So, right. I mean, so now, you know, we're talking about quadrupling um, the capacity of it. And so, you know, concerns are um, maximized. And I should also say, you know, another point people should keep in mind, you know, they're expanding this detention center by, by making use of the space of a former prison. Basically, a former privatized Bureau of Prisons facility, which, you know, based on a directive that President Biden issued to the Department of Justice, um, basically stopped operating as a private prison. So, you know, when the news came that the DeRay James um, prison, you know, the, the facility I'm just talking about mm-hmm. is going to close, we were all happy and celebrating that, you know, one less private prison, that's great. And then... <laughs> You know, uh, less than a year ra- later, the, this um, the, this former prison is now gonna um, hold uh, people in ICE custody, uh, which again I think is the fundamental problem of um, you know I think the hypocrisy of this administration in terms of the nice rhetoric, but then failure to actually put it into action. We know of all of the criticism that Stewart Detention Center had received in groups like. Yours, Project South, and other groups working with similar complaints. Can you give us an update for our listeners through your lens and how the Stewart Detention Center now is? Have you all been able right. to? Yeah. So, um, again, eight people have died at Stewart since May 2017, two by suicide. Four people have died during the pandemic, um, which makes Stewart the deadliest. Was that due prison. to COVID? Uh, yes, okay. due to COVID. Yes, due to COVID and COVID-related complications. Um, and um, and as, as I said, women are now also being detained there, um, which, you know, the question is, why does this administration think that a steward, given its long, horrid record, is in a place um, to hold women and provide them um, you know, the reproductive care um, and other health care that they need? Um, so, you know, we continue to um, to push on our demands, which is shut Stewart down. And also Folkestone uh, is another facility that needs to be shut down rather than expanded. If shut down, and I'm sure you can understand someone listening saying, well, do you have plans or a process in place for some type of housing for these folks as they are awaiting, whether it's some type of immigration status uh, hearing or something else related to their their mm-hmm. status here as being mm-hmm. a, a resident mm-hmm. what's the solution right, so, sure and you know there is no reason that people should be imprisoned while they're awaiting uh, an immigration court hearing a lot of these folks are asylum seekers you know why are we putting asylum seekers in prison um, and you know studies have shown that um, people who are basically released, um, on the promise of coming back to immigration court, actually will. People show up for their immigration court. Um, so, you know, the only entities that seem to profit from this unnecessary and hugely expensive and inhumane system are these private prison corporations. You mentioned the Biden administration. Are you all and in, in, in like-minded groups, or do you all have some support from congressional delegations, whether here in Georgia or any other uh, lawmakers in, in getting the Biden administration to address your concerns that you all have? Right. So um, we were really in you know, close touch with members of Congress um, after our report came out um, about Irving. A congressional delegation of, of 12 members of Congress came down and were really horrified by what they saw at Irving and called for it to be shut down. Um, and put uh, a lot of pressure on the Trump administration um, to go ahead and shut this place down. And you know, we definitely appreciated the attention that they were giving this place. You know, we do hope to see similar levels of attention now that, um, you know, another administration in, is in place. 
um, you know, another president does not mean that the human rights violations have stopped. Um, and I should say that um, number of people in detention since Biden came to office have actually been on the rise. Um, you know, Biden had a historic opportunity to actually further cut down on the number of people in detention. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, this administration did not do that. So we do hope that uh, members of Congress um, continue to express their concern about the dignity and human rights of individuals in detention, regardless of who is in office. And finally, Azadeh, meanwhile, as you all wait uh, to see what the determination is going to be about this expansion, uh, what else are you all working on? Well, there is an open letter that Project South and several uh, other organizations have signed addressed to the Biden administration. We continue to call on them to um, pay attention to principles of dignity and human rights and not expand this detention center, rather close it and other detention centers with similarly egregious human rights records. Immigrant rights advocate Azadeh Shashahani with Project South. Thank you so much for taking the time. And again, we should note, Closer Look reached out to ICE for they declined comment on record. We are still working to get someone on as well to discuss this very, very important community issue. Azadeh, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I guess that's micro mobility music, Daniel. This is Daniel produced this segment, so of course. <laughs> I like that. Closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. When you hear micro mobility, what comes to mind? It's not just about the scooters, and y'all know how I feel about the scooters. We won't get into that, but you're on the right track. And we wanted to learn more about how this fits into Atlanta's transit and what's called the Vision Zero Safety Plans. Well, Ashley Finch. As the answers, we think she's the city's Department of Transportation's new shared micromobility coordinator. Some folks refer to Ashley as the micromobility czar. We'll see what she prefers. Welcome to Closer Look. Hi, Rose. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, your family probably, you're probably the only one in your family ever who is a micromobility czar. Yes, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> you let them know at family gatherings and, hey, I'm the only one that has this distinction. Yeah. They, um, they're often very confused by the title, but um, <laughs> I explain it to them and, you know, they get it. What so, do you say? Yeah. Well, what do you tell them? Um, so I tell them that um, as the shared micromobility coordinator, I'm really focused on both uh, the development, regulation and day to day administration of the city's shared micromobility program, which includes the city's bike share program as well as our dockless micromobility device program, which uh, you may know as the e-scooters and the e-bikes that you see around town. Absolutely. And, and we all know that when this when the scooters first came, and they were just kind of dropped in and then uh, bikes came in and there was a lot of issues. How would you assess now where I guess the mindset is about how important it is to have a micromobility sort of landscape for a city like Atlanta. You think folks now have accepted it and it's a little bit more positive as opposed to get all these scooters off the belt line? Yeah, I think definitely as the program has matured, um, we've learned a lot of best practices that we've been able to implement to um, sort of mitigate some of the um, original issues when the scooters and um, the e-bikes were first uh, introduced into the city. So we've worked really hard to um, eliminate issues with uh, scooters being on the sidewalk, um, riders in the sidewalk. Um, we really focused on safety. Um, safety is really paramount to everything that we do. And we also have great relationships with our private micromobility operators. Um, I meet with them. We have a great direct line of communication. So I always know what's going on with their day-to-day -day operations. We can bring any concerns from the city side that we have to them and they really listen and it's a great partnership. And so you know, I think as um, as we continue to to learn more, work with our peer cities that also have shared micromobility programs, I really think that um, the, the the city's program is is in a great spot, and we're doing a lot of really interesting work to solve those last mile connections and just provide um, fun mobility options for the people in Atlanta. And I want to focus on the vendors for a moment because that's been key. Because at one point early on, there were maybe like seven or eight different 
e-scooter operators here. I think there was an ordinance that was passed or something. You all put a moratorium on that in terms of the number. Uh, what is the exact, do you all have a cap on how many of these can come into the city? Or is there a process now that they have to go through before they can just drop their e-bikes or drop their e-scooters here in Atlanta? Yes, uh, we have a very formalized uh, permitting process. And right now we are working with three operators compared to um, originally when there were a lot of operators in the city. And um, working with three um, just gives us a little more um, day-to-day great communication um, just with having to um, sort of deal with organizing um, a lot of different companies. You know, we just have three and Mm -hmm. they um, have been great partners with the city. They went through... um, a full permitting process where um, a lot of different micromobility operators apply for permits and we go through um, like a scoring system just to see sort of who fits the best with what we're looking for. And in, in that permitting process, um, we look at a lot of best practices that we're looking for. We're seeing uh, which operators could help meet our sort of guiding principles for mm-hmm. our micromobility program, which are safety, equity and mobility. And um, so right now we're working with Bird, Lime, and Spin, um, who are our current permit holders. So you, it seems like you all have a, a little bit better handle on, on safety. Um, let's talk about the equity piece here because we, we use that term a lot on this program. And that's always, probably with every segment, somehow, somehow equity is a tentacle tied to this. When you all are looking at micromobility here in Atlanta and you look at equity, what is that? Take us through that pathway. What are you trying to achieve and how do you even go about even putting in the metrics to assess? Are you achieving that? Sure. Um, So, yeah. So I would say like access and equity are um, one of our um, major goals with this program, specifically geographic equity and um, meeting transportation needs across the city. And so before I joined the program, um, uh, our great team at ATL DOT um, designated three equity zones in the city. And um, we require our uh, micromobility operators to keep a percentage of their fleet in these three equity zones um, every single day. And so if they are not um, meeting that goal to have the number that we request of mm-hmm. those um, micromobility devices in the equity zones, you know, then that's not meeting our compliance for our program. And so that's really important to us because we see shared micromobility as an essential link to jobs, schools, health, housing, healthcare, grocery stores, and of course, to transit and other essential services. So, you know, we're really just trying to make sure that people have as many mobility options as they can and to make sure that everyone in Atlanta has as much access as possible to well, where, um, our... Where yeah, are those equity zones? The first question. And then how do you track and make sure that they are keeping a, a set number of these, whether it's scooter, e-bikes or scooters in these equity zones? Sure. Um, So uh, the equity zones encompass a lot of different neighborhoods, um, and I actually don't have that list with me right now, um, but I can share that with you so you can share with your listeners. Um, We have a map that shows that, and I'd love to share that with you. And also we have, um, so Scooter and our micromobility providers um, have data that they provide to us, and so we're actually able to see every single day where, um, in real time, where Mm -hmm the vehicles are. And so we know that the, the devices are either in the equity zones or they're not, and we're able to track those policies. And so if we're seeing on a day-to-day basis that from our real-time data that the devices are not in the equity zones, we can come to the operator and you know tell them that they need to be compliant with that. And we can also see where those devices are to make sure that they are um, not sort of all in one location, that mm-hmm. they're sort of spread throughout our equity zones. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Ashley Finch, the city of Atlanta's Department of Transportation's new shared micromobility coordinator. Let's talk then about the city's overall plan, because when we talk about this Vision Zero plan, for listeners not familiar with that, uh, give an overview. Sure. Um, so Vision Zero is a nationwide goal to eliminate all traffic fatalities and severe injuries. And Atlanta adopted our Vision Zero program in April 2020, and it really is the overarching goal of our entire department at the Atlanta Department of Transportation to, you know, our goal is Vision Zero in every single program, and that includes our shared micromobility program. And so that's really, for me, the focus is really safety. Like, what does it mean to have safety in terms of shared micromobility? And Mm -hmm. so 
I consider that to be the devices themselves. They need to be safe. We're looking at the hardware and the software that they're using. So I work with our shared micromobility providers and operators to make sure that I know the technical specs that they're providing. We talk to other cities mm-hmm. to see, you know, what are the safety concerns where you are? How are the devices operating? And so, you know, just talking to as many partners as possible is really important. Other strategies we use are reduced speed zones in mm-hmm. areas like the Beltline, where there might be a lot of pedestrian and cyclist traffic. It's mm-hmm. how do we, you know, be able to create safe spaces for everyone to share and make sure that everyone has, um, you know, just the the safest operations, no riding on the sidewalk. How do we achieve sort of that parking compliance where our essential bike paths and um, sidewalks are not, um, they don't have mm-hmm. any um, micromobility parks that could be impeding other users. So we, we take all that into consideration. Let me get your thoughts on this because we, mo- most of the cyclists that I see, folks that ride the bikes, they typically will have a, a, a helmet. Uh, I, I'm, every day I talk about how my wonderful producers and engineers, some of them, they use bikes, they have helmets. Um, do you think there should be some type of policy or is it just too would be too hard to enforce having those who utilize the dockless, the scooters, that they wear a helmet? Because we know and I've talked to folks in emergency rooms and they say, Rose, yes, probably much every day someone comes in with a severe head injury from a scooter accident. Is that would that be too hard to enforce? So in talking with um, some of our peer cities that have um that do require helmets, it has been incredibly difficult to enforce. And some of the enforcement issues have also created equity problems and who's being targeted for that enforcement. And so that's definitely something to keep in mind with policies like that. We really encourage helmet use and we actually partner with our shared micromobility operators to do helmet giveaways and safety campaigns to encourage helmet use as much as possible. So from that safety perspective, that's incredibly important to us. And we're always continuing to reevaluate our policies, talk to our peer cities to see how those policies are working for them, what that enforcement looks like, and to just make sure that, you know, we are keeping our users and um, both visitors and residents to the city that um, use the uh, shared micromobility devices as safe as possible. When we talk about more accessible micromobility, what other options are you all looking at for folks who may not want or be able to ride a scooter or a bike? Because micromobility is just more, as you said, than scooters and bikes, right? Exactly. So one thing that is a personal goal for me is to look more at um, inclusive and accessible devices, whether that's um, adaptive devices for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. I'm continuing to do that research and see what options that we could have in the city of Atlanta. And that also when you're looking at accessibility, you have to look at payment options, types of payments that are accepted, our sort of user experience with the apps. So I just want all of that to be as accessible as possible. And so I'm continuously working with our operators to see what innovations are out there um, to have more inclusive and accessible devices, as well as, um, like I said, I, I talked, I spent a lot of time talking to other cities that mm-hmm. have great programs and you know, we just want um, Atlanta's program to be the best that it can be and to be a model program. So definitely looking into accessibility as, as a big goal in do my you, job. Do you go outside of the nation? Do you go to, to have you researched what other nations are doing? Yes. So um, so shared micromobility is something that's happening across the globe. And so um, I'm always looking for new cities, especially globally, that are doing really interesting things. And you know, everyone has different policies and different cultures. And so I think it's really interesting to see, like, what could we take and maybe implement in Atlanta that could be interesting and innovative that they're doing in other countries. And I get that feedback as well from our shared micromobility operators that operate in other cities around the globe. Have you so found an anything yet? Like, is, is it, Have you found anything, you know, yet, like in, in other nations that, that uh, is, is attractive? So I'm... Uh, Continuing to like, I've only been in the job for a month, so I haven't had the opportunity to talk to a lot of cities. And I'm asking, I'm years. asking so much of you, Ashley. You just got there, but 
<laughs> no, I like it. I like it. So that's a, a big goal of mine is just to continue um, to to reach out to cities outside of the U.S. as well, because I think there's a lot to learn there. Um, so nothing off the top of mind yet, but that is definitely in the pipeline. I keep hearing about I keep hearing about Denmark and Switzerland. So tell Mayor Dickens that you need to have a travel budget increase <laughs> so you can go to, you know, Denmark and, and Switzerland and see what they're doing over there. I'm just saying that's just me. Of course, yeah, I don't want to get mean, you in trouble. I love that idea. So I'll say um, Rose <laughs> told me that, you know, I need to go abroad to um, do some site visits. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, let me know how that turns out for you, Ashley, when you mention that to Mayor Dickens. Let me ask you this. Why, why, why are you in this, uh, this space? What's, what, what is so appealing for you um, to be in this, this role? So I've been a transportation planner um, for five years, and I um, – I worked in transit before and I, you know, last mile connections are so important. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a cyclist myself. I love active transportation as a field. I think, you know, looking at especially the city's mobility goals is we want to create as many modes as possible for people to use and for them to feel like there are options so that they do not have to use a car if they don't need to or do not have one. And so to me, it's just super important. Um, I love active transportation. Mm -hmm. I love being able to have multimodal trips and for those options to exist. And I, I want that for everyone across the city to be able to have those choices. I have a, a comment and sort of a question from a listener who says the city's bike share program, not the third party ones, but the relay bikes, they've been lacking in terms of availability, upkeep, uh, et cetera. Um, wants to know, is the city working to pick that back up or maybe have a more focused uh, with private companies? Uh, have you all been starting to look at that with the relay bikes? And, and one, are they still, are they a viable option that you all should have? Yes. So the relay bikes uh, remain a viable option. And um, also um, to answer your question, yes, I'm, I'm looking into our bike share program, looking at best practices. Um, I'm one of the things I want to do in this role is to do a lot of surveys with users to see what's working. What isn't, what, what isn't working right now? What do we need to improve? And so I think that, with our bike share system, um, that's going to be a really big goal for my position is to just sort of take it to the next level. What is the future of bike share going to look like in Atlanta? And so I really appreciate user feedback on current conditions, what they think could be better, what users want to see, because I think that, you know, that's so important. I really want to hear from people about what they need. And I want to make sure that the city is able to provide a great product. And when you're seeking that com those comments and, and feedback and input, uh, again, going back to equity, a conversation I just had the other day in terms of making sure the entire community, whether it's Southwest Atlanta, East Atlanta, because, you know, you exactly. you may know this, that often sometimes when they get this input, they want input. Sometimes a community, maybe not intentional, gets excluded from, you know, having their input because it's going to be what someone wants in Vine City, English Avenue, maybe different than what someone wants in Ponce Highland. So you're all going to make exactly. sure you get all the feedback, right? Yes, definitely. That's a high priority. And full disclosure, I have never been on a scooter, Ashley. I am just, I'm just scared to death. Will you, <laughs> well, will you go on a scooter with me? Will we, will I you? would love to go on a scooter right. with you, Rose. But I'm not getting in the street, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be on the belt line. <laughs> <laughs> we or, can definitely ride on the belt line. Or in a parking have, lot. I'm not. We have the slow zone on the belt line. They go nice and slow. It's great introductory. And we're going to have some fun events in the spring where we're going to um, have folks come to be able to do rides to, to just try out the scooters and the e-bikes. So I will definitely uh, make sure you know about those so you can come try one. All right. By the way, the same listener said Philly's bike program is top notch. We can't confirm that because we don't know anything about Philly's. It's just a listener who's just trying to y'all to you know, be like Philly. Ashley Finch is the Shared Micromobility Coordinator for the Atlanta Department of Transportation. Ashley, welcome to your position. Thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have you back and I will get on a scooter if you go with me. You got to be right just beside yeah, me. Let's do it. I'm ready. All right, Ashley. Don't have me fall. <laughs> you, you will. I promise. <laughs> By the way, that is a series you definitely should check out by WABE Stephanie Stokes. As Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Amplifying Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. 
Public health workers at the Carter Center, located here, of course, in Atlanta, recorded just 14 cases of guinea worm disease in humans in 2021. It's a sharp drop in cases despite the global disruptions caused by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And this is extremely important given eradicating guinea worm disease is a decades-old mission of the Carter Center and the former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Now, the following clip features President Carter and wife Rosalind on a visit to northern Ghana. This is about 16 years ago. If the worm comes out of a joint, say in your knee, it swells up and destroys the tissue. So the aftermath is very similar to polio. It completely debilitates that knee, and, and sometimes the knee, is, the leg is, is crippled for the rest of one's life. And of course, these kids can't go to school. They, the pain is too great, and they need uh, medical care. And the Carter Center has made significant progress in eradicating the disease in recent decades, cutting down a few million cases recorded each year to dozens. But it's a goal that faces a significant complication because animals can also animals can also be infected. Here for an update on the Carter Center's efforts is Adam Weiss. He's director of the nonprofit's Guinea Worm Eradication Program. Adam, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Rose. Let me let's start with this for our listeners who may not be familiar. If you can, it, just give them a definition of what is Guinea Worm disease. Sure, Guinea Worm is a parasitic disease that you get from drinking contaminated water, and this is a worm that grows up to about three feet long. Uh, but what's peculiar about it is that it has a one-year incubation period. So many people in the endemic areas rely on stagnant sources of water to drink from. And oftentimes they wade into these water sources to try and get what appears to be cleaner water. So sometimes unintentionally infecting those same water sources with guinea worm. Mm-hmm. And then if you drink that water uh, over the next one year, your body is not aware that you actually have been exposed to this parasite. And then roughly at that one year period, a boil or blister will emer- will form and then a worm will emerge. And that mm-hmm. worm can take several weeks to even a month or more to emerge from your body, uh, which is why President Carter on the clip you played talks about how debilitating mm-hmm. guinea worm can be. And also for our listeners, let's talk about the, the kinds of populations that were at most risk going back decades, and I believe it was mo- it was a lot of in, in African and in Asian nations, correct? Absolutely. So back in 1980, the Global Guinea Worm Eradication Program was actually born right here in Atlanta at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drs. Bill Fagey and Drs. Donald Hopkins of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control identified guinea worm as as something that could be eradicated. And this, of course, was on the heels of the smallpox eradication campaign. And so at the time, they started working with national ministries of health to get a sense of just how widespread guinea worm was. And it was primarily in sub-Saharan Africa, Mm -hmm. uh, but also in parts of uh, Asia and the Middle East. Uh, Since 1986, President Carter uh, has taken the lead Uh, to support financially, technically, the Global Eradication Program. And at that time, there were 20 countries, all in sub-Saharan Africa, that were endemic for this disease. And at that time, there was an estimated 3.5 million people with guinea worm disease. Wow. And then, you know, Adam, when you think here in 2022, you all have only citing 14 cases Wow. It's pretty it's pretty mind bending to think that there's only 14 people with this disease and in a world of nearly 8 billion people. It's pretty incredible. Take our listeners through how you all were able to get from millions to 14. A lot of grit, determination and what we at the Carter Center call acts of courage, daily acts of courage that are required by the village volunteers. Uh, who really form the foundation of this eradication program. Uh, They provide peer-to-peer health education. They help distribute cloth filters and pipe filters that can help people make their water free of guinea worm. Uh, They're the ones that really sponsor the program. uh, And they're the ones that, you know, take a lot of risk working in communities that are often prone to insecurity. Uh, And we often refer to these areas as kind of beyond the end of the road. They're Mm -hmm. the most disenfranchised populations on planet earth. Mm -hmm. They're often uh, disconnected from their own political systems and structures. 
they're, they're not as empowered economically or socially within their local context. And so Guinea worm is really a story of opportunity and power for them. And as we've seen since the time when there were more than 20 endemic countries to today, when there's only five endemic countries, certainly that is a great testament to, to their commitment to this campaign. And you all at the Carter Center, spending all these years, decades, with these programs, are there, spe- were there specific initiatives that you that you all cite as these were the ones that really altered the course here? And, ter- and also in terms of understanding that when you go into another nation's community, culture, you need to come in as an ally and not as someone who's trying to tell them what to do. And that can always take time. That, that can take time. You can't just come in there and set up a shop. Now, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, this is not a campaign that can be led by foreigners or outsiders by any means. And it really does require the will and engagement of the local communities. Uh, and Guinea worm, because it is debilitating, and from that perspective of 1986, when there are three and a half million people with the disease, certainly there are, are more than just a few stories of communities that struggled to put food on their tables uh, for kids to be able to go to school. And so you start to get into the the issue of equity and people not being given a fair shot. Mm -hmm. And so the way not only the Carter Center, but the National Guinea Worm Eradication Programs really approach this is that it it has nothing to do with outsiders. It's, It's really all just about empowering the local communities, local leadership to talk about what they can do to make their lives even just a little bit better. Guinea worm may not be their only problem. In fact, guinea worm is not their only problem. But you put something like a three-foot-long worm that takes weeks or months to pull out of your body on top of malaria, on top of cholera, on top of so many other diseases and ailments and challenges and tribulations, uh, you know, this is one opportunity to really inspire and motivate. And so what's always impressed me is is that it becomes, it is their story. It's Mm -hmm. not our story. And so I've always been very sensitive to that, uh, even from the first times I traveled to Africa myself, or even being in Ghana at the time when President Carter came to visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really a testament to what the communities have done to say, okay, we have this problem. What can we do about it? And sometimes you also have to be able to ask others for help sure. now, or I guidance. Don't, but, but the story has not stopped. You still, this is not fully eradicated yet because now we know that infections are in animals so how are you all dealing with that and are there other challenges that complicate the eradication effort here yeah there there are two main global eradication campaigns at this time the polio eradication effort and the guinea worm eradication effort and both have really faced these last mile challenges where you start to get to very low numbers and you start to see challenges crop up. Some of those may be very technical challenges. Some of them may be political. Some of them may be socioeconomic uh, in the particular communities that still have the disease. And so for guinea worm, we have faced one of those last mile challenges where we started to see infections in domestic dogs and and a few cats, Mm -hmm. as well as a couple of baboons in Ethiopia. But this really forced the program to take stock of what it knew and understood about guinea worm, as well as to further engage communities around the things that need to be done to interrupt transmission. And so a lot of practices in communities that have guinea worm today, they often rely on small scale fishing activities um, or even larger scale fishing activities to provide food for their family. And so they unwillingly or unknowingly were actually infecting their own dogs with guinea worm disease. Hmm. And that took a lot of robust research with different partners around the world, including the U.S. Centers for Disease Control here in Atlanta, but also the World Health Organization uh, and many academic institutions to really make sure that we understood the modalities of transmission so that we could also give the right advice and guidance to ministries of health so that we could create and co-create interventions to mitigate those risks. Adam, is are there treatments? Is there anything that prevents, even if someone does ingest, you know, the, the water or, or somehow, you know, contract the, the parasite, is there anything that can be used to treat it? 
Unfortunately, no, there's no vaccine. There's no therapeutic apart from giving a patient uh, a little bit of Tylenol to ease the pain. There's really nothing you can do except to manually help pull that worm out kind of millimeter by millimeter day by day. And so people often feel even more vulnerable because there's simply nothing you can do. Uh, and so as a campaign, we are kind of operating with one hand tied behind our back because we don't have a vaccine or a therapeutic to, to help stop transmission. Uh, but that hasn't stopped us from, again, collaborating mm -hmm. with many partners, including those at the community level uh, with whom we've built trust with over decades. Uh, because again, this is their program mm -hmm. and, and we're there to just provide the technical and financial support and, and make sure that you know, they have all of the resources they need to be able to stop transmission. Adam, I've got about a minute left, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this for our listeners as well. So where does the eradication effort go from here? And if we're talking a year from now, where do you hope those numbers will be? Well, we continue to operate with a great sense of urgency. Uh, we would love nothing more than to see guinea worm gone tomorrow. But we're, we're reasonable in our approach and understand this is going to take a couple more years. The World Health Organization has targeted 2030 mm -hmm. as uh, the end of what should be this campaign, uh, and we will continue to work steadfastly towards that. Uh, we had 14 people reported with the disease last year. I'm mm -hmm. hoping we can get that down to just a handful Absolutely. over the next year or two so that we can continue to show progress on the human infections uh, while continuing to stop that potential risk that's caused by animal infections, because mm. it's the same guinea worm that can affect humans. Mm. And so we have to make sure that we get rid of every single last worm on planet Earth. Adam Weiss is director of the Carter Center's Guinea Worm Eradication Program. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. Good information. Best of luck to you all continue, continuing to fight this disease. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Netter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program. We talked about a lot or any other. So send me an email, as you all do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.